Okay, I'd like to um, welcome everyone this morning, and we'll get rolling. We're not doing too bad. It's less than five minutes late, which for us is maybe one minute early. <laughs> Good to see everyone. <clears throat> Just to put things in perspective, uh, we are finishing this morning the doctrine of God, which means we've worked through we will have worked through two major sections of our text of this class, which also happens to mean that we are one-fourth over in terms of the number of subject matters. I haven't done the precise math, but there are eight sections. We finished our second one this morning. So it's been good, uh, good for me. I hope it's been good for your soul and I want to continue with the help of the Lord to make these, these profound doctrines accessible, understandable, applicable, encouraging, life-transforming, prayer-inspiring, etc., etc., etc. And if I start getting too... Um, complex and too frequently losing you by the way we all should get lost several times in any of these studies say whoa this is way 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 beyond me I'm in the deep end of the pool here hope you got my text man I did okay but look right over there <laughs> those those are those are from, from die miss die um, I don't ever want to be needlessly complex so, but we're talking, folks, we're talking about God. Should we expect that to be quite easily within our grasp? No. If we do, then we already have a deficient view of God. So when it comes to the doctrine of providence, that is true once again. So let me just quickly ask the Lord to bless this time and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, as we think about your absolute, universal control of everything that takes place in the universe, help us to be left with a sense of wonder and amazement and awe and humility. Help us to see how we should respond to this today not just today, but the rest of our lives. Help us to see how frequently in various situations in life, in life, we need to quickly say, now wait a minute, this is the providence of God. How should I respond? Please help this class to be practical for your sake and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I, yes, Dave? Ask a quick question sure. About creation. Absolutely. <clears throat> I know it's off the subject a little bit. That's okay. We got started in the book on page uh, 99. Allison made this comment about, uh, about the number three. It says the beginning of creation, the earth was without form, void, and darkness over the face of the deep. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Mm -hmm. The hovering spirit was preparing and protecting the chaotic core of creation. I've never heard that as used as a green spirit. 
quite. I was wondering if you could maybe indulge me a little bit. Well, you're at the bottom of page 93, correct? Uh, 99. Oh, 90, 99. Number three, you see, for instance, that was. Let me come back to 99. Okay. And once again, what paragraph is that? Because I was on the wrong page to start with. I'm sorry. What see the number three, parentheses? Number three, the first new full paragraph? At the beginning of creation. It's the second. Yeah, okay, okay. The hovering spirit was preparing and protecting the chaotic core of creation. And you're wondering what that, what does that really mean and what's that referring to? And you, you're saying, I don't know that I've ever heard that or thought about that. I've heard of it as hovering spirit. Yeah. Well, if the word, the Hebrew word can be translated variously, but that's pretty much the concept. Um, is anybody able to point? Did he tell us the exact verse there? It's verse 2, isn't it? Okay. It says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over. Okay. You've read that before, correct? Right. Okay. But the question for you is, what does that mean? And what, what is Allison talking about to um, preserve and to uh, sustain it from sort of all coming apart? When he says chaotic, that kind of throws me Yeah. Okay. I mean, God created stuff. Well, chaotic. Um, chaotic in the sense that he hadn't organized it. If you had seen, if we had been, if we were able to see that stage of creation before God started saying, now, now, let there be. He created the substance, the, the earth and so forth. Well, let's see what the text actually says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. But he does now something. Something's without form and void. Nothing is always without form and void. Something here is without form and void. There is a creation. Um, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So it was. You might say the first stage of creation, uh, chaotic. By the best definition, by the right definition, but not uh, something that was evil or bad or a bad reflection on God. It was just kind of like if we could talk to God, He would say, uh, "What do you make of this?" And we'd say, "I don't know what." To well, of course, we'd have to be created, wouldn't we? But if we could go back now, and He asked us that question and He showed us what it looked like, what do you make of that? And say, "I don't know what to make of it. It's something." And obviously it couldn't have come into existence if you hadn't brought it to existence. And then it's, we have to almost imagine God saying, that's right, I did, now watch what I'm going to do with it. But the point of the text, Dave, is that the Holy Spirit was doing something. And we, honestly, I don't think we know. There's another Hebrew word that's used there. and Well, I mean, the Hebrew word is capable of being translated brooded over, brooded over. But what was he doing? Um, we have to conclude that he was doing something or he wouldn't have been there. There was intentionality to the Holy Spirit's hovering. And guys like Allison and most theologians conclude that it was just, it was an activity of preserving that and watching over it until such time as God decided to turn it into uh, the seven days of creation. So I don't know how to say more than that. I think it's a mystery too. Every time I read that, I kind of, and I read it several times with Providence because 
in Providence, there's, there's been some mentioning, even in our chapter, and some of the stuff I've been reading this week, about what the Holy Spirit was doing. And um, I think there's a certain level of mystery involved in that. And I, I'm sorry that I can't give you a better answer. Does it help? At least gets his point in the right direction. I wish your brother was in here right now, but Tim, do you have anything helpful to add to what I just said about what in the world the Holy Spirit was doing? It's a mystery. <laughs> okay. Well, what is the job of the Holy Spirit? What does he do? What, you mean normally? Yeah. So you're trying to say, can we take the general doctrine of the Holy Spirit and apply it to this situation, yeah. right? Well, he does many things. I'm, I'm hard-pressed to see the direct connection. Um, he certainly brings to life people, like I'm thinking of his... Um, he restrains evil. Um, he regenerates sinners. He illuminates understanding. He brings life to the soul. But it doesn't seem that he was doing those things. So it may be there's a key to that general question, but I don't know what I don't know how to unlock the door with that key. Okay, I, I think it's a great question, Dave, and let's let's give some further thought to that. Okay, I if we had tons and tons of time, I'd say anyone else have thoughts on this, but I think probably I shouldn't raise that question. Okay, just in the interest of keeping this class going, but it's a good question, and and I'm glad you asked it, Dave. And let's all pray for light, and let's all think about it, and let's see if we can come up with some good answers. Okay, um, now, I have put on the board behind me a, a historic definition of, maybe those, are those doors closed there? A historic definition of God's providence. Uh, this definition was written by the Puritans in the 1600s behind me, this definition behind me. <laughs> I really... I really love this definition. I've memorized it years and years ago, and I've found it helpful many times to just review it in my mind. Uh, you know that they wrote this Westminster Confession of Faith, and then they decided that they should develop some tools to help teach the great doctrines of the confession. And so they wrote a, what they call a, a larger catechism, which was more for profound theologians, and then they wrote a shorter catechism, which was for children. And I remember that Spurgeon once said that the average minister anywhere in England or in America would do well to understand what children understood, young people understood, during the days of the Puritans. He said that, that the divinity, the wisdom, the theology of the shorter catechism was more profound than most seminaries teaching. And he was right. But this was actually designed for dads and moms to sit down with their children and teach them to memorize it. Now, of course, since then, there have been other catechisms that are a distill distillation of that, which I think are more helpful right now, actually, for the young children. But I, at one point, began to memorize the shorter catechism. I got quite a ways into it. It was very helpful to me. And then I let it go, and now it would be hard to reproduce a lot of that. So the question is asked, what, is, what are God's works of providence? And the answer is, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful 
preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So when we analyze that just a little bit closer, we see um, the works, we see the objects and the qualities. I'll tell you what I mean by this. Okay, the works are in this definition right here. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful. Preserving, that's work number one. Preserving what he created. And governing, so that's one. that's number two governing and then the objects are all his creatures and all their actions Now, how does he do this? By what, by what qualities does God preserve and govern all his creatures and all their actions? Well, he does it in a most holy, wise, and powerful way. Okay? So that's just kind of analyzing the definition. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. What are the works of his providence? Well, it's preserving and governing. Now, in our text today, if you all read the chapter, you know that there was a third thing they snuck in there. Uh, and understandably, what was it? It's kind of a technical word. Concurrence. 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 Which we'll talk about in just a second. But many, many theologians just speak of two. And I was reading like yesterday, enjoying a good read in uh, Bavink, or excuse me, in Burkhoff. Burkhoff is a classic systematic theology. It's just one of the older ones. And he says, this definition indicates that there are three elements in providence, preservation, <coughs> concurrence, and government. Then he mentions Calvin, Calvin, the Heidelberg Catechism, and some more recent dogmaticians. A dogmatician is a theologian. Dabney, Hodge, Dick, Shedd, McPherson speak only of two elements, namely of preservation and government. This does not mean, however, that they want to exclude the element of concurrence, but they only regard it as included in the other two. That's a little technical. I'm just saying, if you think of... <clears throat> these two things right here, preserving and governing in a certain way, it automatically includes what Allison is going to try to help us understand concurrence. And let's just go ahead and solve that dilemma right now. Concurrence just means that God 
And, and he used the word cooperate. And I, I'm a little uncomfortable with that word, but then I read all the theologians, theologians, including the Reformed theologians, and they use the word cooperate too, but they think of it more as co-operate. That God is working with something. What he's working with isn't a person who depends upon him. He's working with a substance that he created to do certain things. And, and by nature, they do those things, but he keeps sustaining it so that they continue to do those things. That's the easiest way I can explain it. You know, molecules work in a certain way. God designed them to work in a certain way. He preserves them, but he also, I like to use the word, energizes them to do what they're supposed to do all the time. So he's working with what he himself created. In that sense, it's concurrence. But then he steps back and he looks at the big picture. He created it, he sustains it, he's energizing it, and in his perfect intellect, he says now, of course this was determined in eternity, God never thinks in time, God never looks at a situation and says, what am I gonna do about this? I know what I'm gonna do, I'll do this now. He decided everything before time ever began, but the fact is, in, in, in history as it unfolds, God is actually directing it all. He's not just preserving it and energizing it. He's saying, I'm going to make this fulfill my purpose. I have purposes in mind. God never does anything mindlessly. All of his providence is purposeful. But how does that purpose, how does that purpose come to realization? Accidentally? Is it because God just wound up the clock and let it go and see what happens now? Or is it because God is involved with his creation for our sake every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every month of every year of every century of every millennia? He is constantly involved in his creation. He's not only transcendent, above and beyond it all, he's imminent. He's involved with it. And that, you know, if you just stop right there and think about it, that means that we can really take some comfort in the midst of some terrible thing that's going on. Is God, you know, off somewhere saying, ooh, I wish that wouldn't have happened? That's too bad. What am I going to do about that now? That caught me off guard. No, he brought it to pass. Even evil things in a way that he himself is not evil, but the persons, let's say in case where people are actually involved, the crucifixion of Jesus, predetermined. We're going to look at that passage in a minute. And all of the people who crucified Jesus that never got saved afterward are in hell right this minute for being wicked. Did God make them wicked? No. Did God use their wickedness? Yes. So you have in providence a God who's preserving, who's energizing, that's the concurrence part, so that it works, so that it does what he designed it to do, and who is directing it all for his glory, and in the case of Christians, for our good. So this is a good definition. Now, I have one little problem with it. Amy says that there's a problem with it grammatically, but... Yeah, well, you can explain that to class later. <laughs> but but, but uh, part of the... I'm trying to figure out what a noun is anymore. Um, 
I do think part the problem actually um, maybe is that this was written in the 1600s, and so some of the laws of grammar were different. Well, we would put an of after preserving and governing if we were to use those nouns. We would put an of where? After, after preserving of and governing of. Go preserving, governing of all his? Preserving of and governing of. Yeah, and governing of. Okay. We'd also spell actions correctly. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> A-C-T-I-O-N-S. Wait a minute, what word? How do you spell actions? <laughs> oh, but what was the funniest one was that Joe pointed out to me that that one day that was, was correct. What was the what was the word you got me on that one day? I don't even remember. Oh man, that was that was hilarious. Okay, Gary. Carl wants to know if you have your recorder on. I do. You're hoping this is recorded. Yeah. I appreciate that though, and Dave, it really keeps me on my toes on that. I'm almost paranoid about starting that thing, so it's going well. But all this craziness now it's on tape. Now it's been recorded. Um. So, notwithstanding how we might say it today, that's what they said. Eric? What would you consider the difference between preserving and governing? I mean, preserving seems to indicate, obviously, keeping alive. Okay, the, the, difference, the difference is, this is the, this is the nuanced difference. Um, God, God keeps what he created. It, it, creation cannot continue to exist if God doesn't sustain it. If he removed his preserving power from all that he created, it depended upon him to come into existence. It depends on him to stay in existence. If he removed his preserving power, it would, it would go into nothingness. The difference is that keeps it, but he takes what is being kept and now he directs it and, and energizes it and leads it to fulfill its purpose. That's how I would distinguish. Okay? How are the Stutzmans? Good. Jessica said, if, if we ever come in late, try to draw attention to me. She said, try to find some. <laughs> okay. It's good to see you guys. If we all felt how far they drive to be here, you would just be amazed. It's good. Yes. Patrick, repeat questions. Gary, uh, Eric's question? Uh, in, just in general. Oh, I need to repeat the question, yes. Hey, folks, next time I'll do better. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good point because people who are listening say, well, what was the question? Well, if you can't figure out what the question was by my answer, you got problems. <laughs> this is really bad because there's probably serious people that are going to listen to this going online. It's going online. So I, I like Heritage Baptist Church. I'm concerned about one of their pastors. But <laughs> um, well, we gotta have fun. Gotta have fun. I will not edit it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be too much work. That would be too much work. But we do have fun. We can laugh because our sins are forgiven, and there's no wrath hanging over our heads. When non-Christians laugh, they shouldn't be laughing, because hell is just around the corner. So. Now, what is my problem with this, with this definition? It's really small. Here's the change I would make. I would take this word here, um, creatures, and I would change it to this. You, you may disagree, it's fine.
It's, I'll, I'll keep the race here. And I would go like this, C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N. Governing all his creation, and I would just change this word here to this. Now, now in defense of the Puritans, again, I think it's the same problem that Amy's putting her finger on in those days. If you go like this and say, hey Siri, what is, how do you spell creation? And then it goes on, and it, it actually, that's not what I wanted. I'm sorry for bothering you. <laughs> Siri, how do you spell creature? Hey Siri, how do you spell creature? Creature, C-R-E-A-T-U-R-E. Definition, an animal as distinct from human beings, an animal or person of fictional imagery, archaic, anything living or existing, archaic. So I think our Puritan friends actually had in mind what I'm suggesting here when I add uh, the word, or why I use this word. They had in mind when they used, when they used creatures. But what I don't like about creatures, Governing all his creatures. Okay, so what about storms? What about molecules? Do you think a cactus is a creature? Well, not by our definition. Is a boulder a creature? Is fire a creature? Is an ant a creature? Yes, yes. So I like the, I, I want us to be wowed by the fact that God, God is perpetually preserving and governing all his creation, which includes creatures. We're part of his creation. So there's the inanimate world and there's the animate world, right? The animate world, we're more comfortable calling creatures. We don't think of calling a mountain a creature. So that's the only thing I would say. I just would like to see it uh, maybe, and then, then, but then the problem with this is it makes it feel like it's maybe just inanimate, all his creation, but you have to stop and think, well, all of his creation includes us. But when you take the Puritan definition and creatures, it seems like it only includes us. But this class in our Bible teaches us that God is providential over everything he created and that he is actually preserving and governing everything he has created down to the minutia and when i say minutia i'm talking about the inner complexity of an atom we think of an atom as very small I, I, uh, I have this book that I really want to encourage all of you to buy. And I'm, I'm not careless about go buy this because then most people go buy it and say, that wasn't for me. No, this one's for you. 
This is, this is at your level. This is at my level. It's called One Thing by Sam Storms. And what he does is he does what that little video that Tim helped us watch last week. He shows us what he calls the galactical grandeur of the universe. Remember how we went back and back and back and back and back last week and we were seeing really as far as you could go in terms of trying to envision the universe, not just a galaxy, but billions of galaxies. And then we went back in down to that woman lying on the ground, focused on her eye, went into the eye, and then went into the molecular, molecular world of the body. And the second half of the chapter is something like molecular majesty or something like that. And, and he's writing this in a very, very practical, tangible way. And you just sit there and you say, I cannot believe that. Because when you go into the atom, you know, and find the molecules and the nucleus and so forth. Then you can go into the nucleus and you find more of these little tiny things. And then you go into those little tiny things, you'd find more of that and more of that. It's absolutely staggering. And he doesn't, he doesn't go so, so that you're just bored. What in the world? He does this in a brief period of time and you're just, wow. Wow. And what I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, is God's providence is absolute. It's all-inclusive. It is universal. He is preserving and governing not only the universe at large and the galaxies, not only your life, but the molecules and the nuclei of every atom in your body and in the whole universe simultaneously simultaneous and guess what he's not just preserving it and keeping it functioning energizing it to do what it's designed to do get a load of this he is directing it to fulfill his purposes in the history of mankind this side of eternity beyond our imagination staggering if you believe this dear brothers and sisters if you really believe this it better be making a change in the way you think and the way you act and the way you talk and the way you pray and the way you witness and the way you face tragedy because he's either in control of it all or he ain't and if he ain't in control of it all he's not the God of the Bible now we haven't looked at a single text of verse so of scripture to prove this but we and so we need to see a few of them and then I'm going to raise a little, a little dilemma or question because uh, you know, Allison said that there, are, there's, a, it's actually debatable to how extensive God's providence is. Did y'all catch that? It's a little debatable. There are people who believe in meticulous providence, and there are people who believe in general providence, and there are. And we're not going to say that people who believe in general providence aren't Christians. Um, but when I read Grudem which is really, really, really good. This week, a little longer chapter. 
he's just bold. He just says there is there is a debate, but I'm coming down on the side of reformed theology, which believes in the absolute <coughs> control of God over everything, and he defends it. So it's so it's really good. But when I'm when I'm pulling out Burkhoff, and there's a little section here called the objects of divine providence. Okay, you see, you can see the orange. You see little orange there. And then after each of those orange things are verses and verses and verses and verses and verses and verses and verses. But these are just some of the things he says. The objects of divine progress, providence, the teaching, teachings of scripture on this point. The Bible clearly teaches God's providential control over one. Or by, excuse me, God's providential control, one. Over the universe, two. Over the physical word, world, three. Over the brute creatures, four. Over the affairs of nations, five. Over man's birth and lot in life, six. Over the outward successes and failures of men's lives, seven. Over things seemingly accidental and insig or insignificant, eight. In the protection of the righteous, nine. In supplying the needs of God's people, ten. In giving answers to prayer, and eleven, in the exposure and punishment of the wicked. And he has text after text after text. Just gives you an idea of how many things God is providential over. I mean, how many things come under everything. It gives you a little idea of what is everything. And, and Burkhoff would be the first to say, I haven't covered all the categories. But that's the kind of extensiveness of this providence that we're, that we're talking about. So uh, let's just look at a couple of passages um, this morning. Uh, let's, let's, I think in the interest of time, no, I guess we'll, because the, it, won't be heard on the, uh, it won't be heard on the recording. Hebrews 1.3. Let's just talk real quickly about preservation. Hebrews 1.3. And we're going to turn really fast. It's going to be like the old-time sword drills. How many of you grew up in church where you had sword drills? Anybody remember sword drills? My wife, two, three, four of us. You just, you're just youngins. That's all you are. Just youngins. But it was fun. Did you guys have them? I did. I did. Okay. You know, the person up in say, Isaiah 3-7. And we go, and the first one stand up and read it, you know, and you had to win. So... We need to be good, good at sword drills. So Hebrews 1.3, it says, He, speaking of Christ, in the last days he's spoken to us by his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds present tense. He didn't uphold once upon a time. He is presently, always, perpetually upholding the universe by the word of his power. And again, if he didn't, it would go into non-existence. Because nothing can have eternality unless God puts it in it. And, and God's not going to put eternality in anything except the souls of men and so forth. And then the, the eternal state. So there's one upholding. The universe, by the word of his power. Quickly notice with me Colossians 1.17. We looked at this last week. But it's, it's so important about our Savior. 
and our understanding. Why doesn't, why, what holds this universe together? What's keeping it all from just, you know, suddenly disintegrating and blowing up and exploding? Colossians 1.17, speaking again of Christ, he says, and he is before all things, he was eternal, and in him, in him, all things hold together. It isn't the laws of nature that are keeping things held together. The laws of nature depend upon Christ to function. He's keeping the laws of nature holding together. So that's the concept of preservation. Now, just quickly in the Old Testament, Nehemiah 9.6, I love, love this passage. There are literally hundreds of passages we could be looking to, by the way, this morning, just on providence. Nehemiah 9.6. Love this passage. I'd forgotten about this passage. It came back to me with freshness this week. <clears throat> you are the Lord. Here's a good prayer. Sometimes just, pray, just say these words to God and mean them. Lord, you are the Lord. You alone have made heaven, the heaven of heavens. You know, maybe for Nehemiah, that meant the sky and the clouds as far as I can see, but the stars beyond. So this would be the heaven, and then that's the heaven of heavens. But now with our knowledge about astronomy, we know that the heaven of heavens is the universe. It's way beyond what we can see. Lord, you made the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it. That's pretty inclusive. All that is on the earth? What's that include? Well, let me ask an easier question. What does that exclude? Nothing. The seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. Okay? That shows us something of the preservation of God's universe and all that he's made. So, um, there's so many passages but he also governs. Let's just quickly notice Ephesians 1.11. And I know that this is sort of proof texting, but I don't think a single text that I'm looking to, uh, anyone could accuse me or us, Ephesians 1.11, of just taking it out of context. This is a verse that, yes, it has an immediate context, and it's about our salvation. But the statement is broader than salvation. Ephesians 1.11. You, you should memorize this verse. In him we have obtained an inheritance, speaking again of Christ, having been predestined. There's the P word. Can't cut it out of the Bible. Predestined means destined before. According to the purpose of him, okay, God has a purpose. Now, he is talking particularly about our, our salvation. I, I don't deny that. 
But now listen to what this God is like, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things. Just salvation? No. All things according to the counsel of his will. So now we don't just have preservation. We have energizing or concurrence, but especially directing, directing the affairs of the universe right down to the most minute. That's a great verse. Works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's nothing that he does that isn't according to the counsel of his will. So this is true of the universe at large. This is true of history. Let's just remind ourselves of what King Nebuchadnezzar finally discovered. Go to Daniel chapter 4. And in a minute, I'm going to ask, I'm going to put Tim on the spot and ask him to even come up here and answer a question. Daniel chapter 4, you remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and how he finally came to terms with the God of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So I'm just going to read for you verses 4 through 8, or 34, excuse me, 34 through 37. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For, this is, these are some things I came to see and believe. His dominion, his dominion, dominion, is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth, he's talking, I think, about humanity there, are accounted as nothing. Are you in that category, Nebuchadnezzar? I am now. I am now. I didn't used to be. I used to like to walk up on the roof of my palace and just gloat in the great grandeur of my reign. But not now. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does, he, God, the Most High, does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so forth. I think I'll, I'll stop there. I could read more. Nebuchadnezzar came to understand the doctrine of the providence of God through a very humiliating, personal, excruciating experience. But I will remind you of two more things, and then I'm done with my little scriptural survey. Go with me back to Genesis 45, and remember what uh, Pastor Mark drew our attention to, surely, in his helpful preaching on the life of Joseph. And I'm really excited about what's coming up. And I hope I had a little something to do with it. It would give me a little encouragement because I went to Mark and I said, Mark, this thing on Joseph is amazing. Would you consider coming back? Because what, where we left Joseph was he died in Egypt and they were in bondage. But the story doesn't stop there, does it? A, 
a lesser than the great Moses, the greatest Moses to come is Jesus, the deliverer of God's people out of bondage. The lesser Moses was born. And so he's going to come back to that redemptive period of history with Israel. And he's going to show us what God did for them. And he'll keep doing this. And this is what all faithful preachers and teachers should be doing. Don't leave us with Old Testament history as interesting as it is. Show us how this is a prefigure of God's coming. God's coming Moses. God's ultimate Redeemer. Did you guys know that when... Man... Did you guys know that at the transfiguration, and recently I've just come to appreciate this, you know what happened. Christ was glorified in a, with a Shekinah glory, and Elijah and Moses were with him, and Peter, always impetuous, said, Lord, could I just build three tabernacles here for the three of you? And a cloud descends, and it's a very fearful situation, and the cloud goes away, and it dissipates, and there's only Jesus left, and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved son. Hear him. It isn't about Moses of old. It isn't about Elijah. It's not about the law. It's not about the prophets. It's about the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of the prophets in the person of my son. And the text tells us that while they were talking together, anybody remember what they were talking about? They were conversing a little bit. This is a little trivia question. Second coming? coming? No. What would you say? No. No, that's the disciples. No, the disciples didn't have that discussion there. They were scared. His departure. Who said that? Amy. And do you know that the Greek word for departure is exodus? His exodus. Moses the first had an exodus. Moses II has an exodus. He's leading his people out of bondage, and we're going to hear about that. So that was just a short plug. Tell Mark he owes me a little something for that. So here we are, and you know the whole story of what happened uh, with with, uh, Joseph and his brothers and so forth. But in verse 45, starting I think around verse 4, he says to his brothers, So Joseph said to his brother, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve your life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there have been, and yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you for you a remnant in the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and so forth and so on. So you know how they they felt guilt and their guilt was real and it was right. They should have felt terribly guilty. And and Joseph, I don't know how much he understood about providence, but it's very clear about this. He understood that ultimately it wasn't his brothers. Ultimately it was God. And there's a perfect illustration of how God can use sin without making somebody sinful. Just say, okay, there's some sinful brothers. Watch me use them for my glory. I'm going to use them to get him in Egypt. That's the kind of God we have. He doesn't just preserve and energize. He directs. 
He's absolutely sovereign. But that's providence. This is providence. It's all about providence. And what is the, what is the most evil thing any human being ever did on the face of the earth? This is sort of a trivia question. You could easily give the wrong answer. So if you do, I'm not going to say shame on you. Okay, I'm going to give you the answer. It's crucifying Jesus. The Lord of glory. The sinless, the only sinless human being that ever lived. Who was behind that and above that to bring about the most glorious thing that ever happened? God. And that's why we have in Acts chapter 4 these words from Peter. Acts 4, 20, uh, verses 4, uh, Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. Actually, it's in a prayer. I say Peter. We don't know who was leading in that prayer. may have been Peter. So in the midst of the prayer, he says, well, I need to go back to verse 27. For only in this city, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan predestined. There's the P word again. What your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, and so forth. The evil was predestined by God. But in a way that we can't fully understand, God governed the sinful, wicked, evil propensities of all the people who hated Jesus and wanted him crucified. He said, watch me use evil for good. And he was crucified for our sins. So the providence of God rules over evil as well. Now, this is the last question, and uh, you know, Tim, I'm just wondering if I should have you say something about this next week, but I'd be happy for you to come and share this right now. The question is, how meticulous is God's providence? By the way, do you, are you going to talk about any verse in Proverbs? That's just a question. In Proverbs? Yeah. No. Okay. Then I'm just going to mention this, that the Bible says that the lot is cast into the lap, the dice are thrown on the table. But it's whole disposing thereof is of God. That's King James language. He's in control of the throwing of dice. There is no such thing as Jim came to me and said, are you going to talk about it? There is no such thing as luck. What was the other word? Fate. Fate. There's no such thing as luck or fate. So when you say good luck to people, just go like that. <laughs> don't, be, don't be like the preacher, though, who uh, he, he went like this at the beginning of every sermon. <laughs> And he went like this at the, at the end of every sermon. One day, one of his people came and says, Pastor, what's up with that? He says, well, I just wanted to be sure that I wasn't lying about the fact that none of this was coming from me. The whole thing was a verbatim quote from someone else's sermon. So, Tim, come up and just share with that and just lead us in our closing prayer as well, if you will. Okay? The question now that Tim wants to quickly address. Yeah, yeah Eric? Well, I was going to say, at the end of uh, Jonah chapter 4, you see God appointed a plant. And when Jonah was pounded, yeah. God appointed yeah. a worm to eat the plant. Great. And then Great God appointed a scorching east wind to wipe <laughs> right. the plant off the face of the earth. Beautiful he did all of those within hours. Beautiful illustration of providence. It's over everything. Okay, he's answering the question. Do, do we believe in meticulous providence or a general providence? We believe in meticulous providence. Let's pray. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm just gonna I'm just gonna bend the nail over because Pastor Ted has already made the point. I will take exception to the ESV translation of Hebrews one three, where um, it says um, he upholds the universe. The literal translation is he upholds all things. Universe is just big picture. All things is detailed picture and it's the exact same expression in Colossians 1.17 where it says in him all things hold together. It's the exact same two little Greek words in Colossians 1.17 and Hebrews 1.3. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Now think, Pastor Ted has already referred to this, I'm just going to push it a little bit further. Think molecularly about how he upholds all things. There is a particular molecular structure to this little podium. What keeps it wood? Why does it, why, when, you're, when, you're, when you take that water bottle and, and slug it down, what keeps it H2O? Why doesn't it suddenly become H3O? I don't even know what that would be. But why doesn't it become something else? Because at, at the atomic level, you've got a nucleus and electrons and protons, and they're moving. What keeps them moving exactly the way they need to move to keep it from becoming something else? I mean, think of it, think of the chaos that would ensue if molecules changed suddenly. Uh, we'd be, we'd, it, what? I, nothingness, kaboom, we're gone. It's over. So, is that meticulous or is that general? Class? Meticulous. Meticulous. Okay. Um, and then think about, um, you know, Jesus talks about the birds. And it's a, he, he makes a very specific statement. <clears throat> look at the birds, this Matthew 6, look at the birds of the air that they do not reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He feeds them. What do birds eat? Well, some birds eat berries, and some eat seeds, and some catch flies on the fly, and some eat worms. And So what is God doing? He's ordering the path of earthworms in the dirt to feed his birds. Meticulous or general? Meticulous. Um, not Luke 12, 6, talking about sparrows. You know, two or three times in the Gospels, Jesus talks about sparrows, how tiny they are, and you, five sparrows are worth two cents. But Luke 12, 6 says, not one of them is forgotten before God. Not how many? Not one of them. These insignificant little sparrows, not one of them is forgotten before God. Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father who is in heaven. Meticulous or general? Sparrows. God orders the sparrows. Um, and the one I always like, um, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 30, the very hairs of your head are numbered. He has less trouble with my head than yours, okay? Meticulous or general? The hairs of your head are numbered. And they change every day. Now, don't envision God sitting up in heaven 
All right, let's see. Oh, oh, count him over. No, he just knows. He knows. He knows. But what does he know? What does he know? Exactly how many hairs are on your head. Exactly. That's not general. That is meticulous. So I think Allison's book is really good, but I could shoot him for even raising... Yeah, I don't like that. I agree. I wouldn't shoot him. <laughs> Except in a broad general kind of way. If God decreed for you to shoot him, you'd shoot him. But he didn't decree that, okay? So um, just raising the question of general providence just takes God, it just pulls God right out of the details of life, and that's scary. That is really scary to do. So I'm just, I'm just bending the nail over the pastor's head already pounded in that God's providence is meticulous. Down to the hairs of your head, down to a sparrow that falls. How many sparrows have fallen in the last 10 minutes? God knows exactly. How many, how many, how many, how many seeds did God provide for the robins to eat so that when they nest in the maple tree above my driveway at this time every year, they cover my car with the residue. <laughs> it's detailed. The providence of God is detailed, and that ought to give rise to great rejoicing and thanksgiving in our hearts that God is over the details of our lives and not just the big picture. He is over the big picture because the big picture is made up of what? A gazillion little pictures, and God's over all of them. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your detailed providence. It, it, how, how do you do that? We, we don't understand. But we are glad that you do, and we don't need to understand, to confess and embrace gladly that your providence extends to every detail of life and every detail of the entire universe. Thank you for such wisdom. Thank you for such power. Thank you for such glory. Thank you for such wonder. And as we go now into the time of worship and your word is open to us, may, may our hearts already be full. May they, may they overflow with thanksgiving and praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.